May the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. There is a fine line between embarrassment and humiliation. And we've all been there, haven't we? You get dressed early in the morning one day to go to work and it's still dark and you don't want to wake up your spouse. So you just get your stuff together and you, you get all dressed and, and you get out the door and you, you get to the first meeting of the day and you look down and you've got one black shoe and one brown shoe on. And you recognize this the same time that somebody else does. There's no place to hide, nowhere to go. You just have to live with it. Um, I remember in my first ministry assignment, I was a, a, a pastor to teens. And one of the uh, young teenagers in my um, youth group was having surgery. And so I got up early in the morning, and it was like a 6.30 a.m. surgery. And I got to the hospital to go visit her. And, and there I found Jenna and with her parents. And, and I go in, and, and I could tell she was really nervous. So I cracked a few jokes, and you know, we talked a little bit, and she was laughing. And then Reverend Nicholas, the senior clergyman at our parish, came in as well. She was his parishioner as well as mine. And he comes in looking, you know, the epitome of, of, of clerical profession. You know, he's got on a, a you know, light blue pair of trousers and a gray sport coat, and he just looks really good, except for the fact that his fly was completely opened. Yes, exactly. And, and I see it, and I can't get to him fast enough to, like, get him out the room and to spare him the embarrassment and so I couldn't. Um, it was just too late. One more uh, little story. My friend Teresa, Abby and I have this friend, Teresa, um, who is a, a, an absolutely hilarious person and um, loves a good laugh. Uh, she worked as a, as a legal secretary in downtown Springfield. It's like, a, you know, like the size of, of Youngstown. It's a, a pretty bustling downtown city area. And... Um, and she was working one day, as a, and, and her boss gave her a, a bunch of files to take over to the courthouse. And so it was a walk, you know, just down the, take the elevator down and walk across the street to the courthouse and deliver these files. And so here she is, you know, this professional-looking legal secretary who's walking down the street, and one of her thigh-high pantyhose falls to her ankle. Yes, right on the middle of a busy street at noontime. And she didn't know what to do, so she said, I just kept walking. And then the other one fell loose, too. And so here she is, you know, in her skirt and everything and high heels with two pantyhose pooling around her ankles. She said, I, I made it into a, a, a pharmacy and, and fixed myself, but it was too late. Cars had gone by, people on the street, everybody saw it. And I remember her telling us, snorting and laughing the whole way through, how absolutely embarrassing it was. And if something like those things hasn't happened to you, well, then count yourself lucky because it happens to most of us. Um, I remember, though, a, a story a couple of years ago about another sort of embarrassing situation. And this was two basketball teams were playing. They were actually Northeast Ohio teams. One was Gilmore Academy, and the other one was uh, Northeast Ohio College Prep. And, and these are girls' schools. And, and so the girls' basketball teams were playing against one another. And... Um, and though the Northeast Ohio prep school managed to take 28 shots, not one of them fell during the game. They had four free throws and made only one of them. On the other hand, Gilmore managed to score 108 points. The final score was 108 to 1. Yeah. The coach was embarrassed. The, the coach of Gilmore, who won the game, was so embarrassed afterward, was telling people, 
We tried. We gave them open shots. It just wouldn't go down. And so it was really difficult. It had crossed the line, though, I think, from embarrassment to humiliation. And that was the difficult part. Embarrassment is when, you know, your pride is hurt a little bit, when you feel a little bit of shame. Um, humiliation is when your human dignity and self-worth are abused where it goes beyond the pale of just slightly awkward, beyond just being embarrassing. I had a, a, a parishioner one time who told me that when he was in the fifth grade that this teacher knew that he couldn't get one concept down. And she loved to ask him the question, you know, to define whatever it was and, and made him stand up in the middle of the class and knowing that he couldn't answer this question would ask him anyway, just to humiliate him, just to embarrass him in front of his student, his fellow students. Humiliation, when you take away a person's dignity and self-worth, far different than just being embarrassed. Sometimes, though, humiliation comes about where one is both the victim and the perpetrator, where we humiliate ourselves in front of other people, where we destroy our own self-worth. And in the gospel lesson today, there's a little bit of this. Jesus tells this story, a famous story. You don't even have to be anywhere around the church to have heard this story. Uh, the, 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 the axiom of prodigal son just kind of works through the whole language. The story is the man has two sons and he's a very rich man. And the younger son says to the father, you know, I want what's mine. I, I want my share of the inheritance. Jesus' hearers, the people who heard this story at first, would have been aghast to hear that a younger son had said something like this to his father. Because this isn't something that a loving son would ever say to his father. He's essentially saying to his father, I wish you were dead so that I can have my share of the inheritance. Joel Green says this, he says, it's at this point that the younger son's shocking breach of familial ties surfaces dramatically. He wasn't asking for money so that he could go on a holiday. He wasn't asking for money so that he could go to university. He wasn't asking for money for some sort of, uh, you know, just fun time. He was saying to his father, I hate everything about you. I hate your authority over me. I hate this family. I hate your religion, your God. I just want to get away and get away from you as far as I can. Jesus' hearers would have heard this story and felt embarrassment. They would have felt embarrassment for this son. How could you do this? I mean, it's like watching an episode of The Office, you know, where you're like, it's cringeworthy. How could you possibly say this? We find out a little bit more, though, about the son. Listen to this passage. This is, in, uh, this is Luke 15, 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that, in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to feed his pigs. If you're a conservative Jew and you hear this story, it's like a, it's the trifecta of absurdity. Um, he does three things. He moves to a far-off country. This is where the pagans live. He takes himself out of the people of Israel, out of his inherited land, and goes to live with the pagans. He then spends all of his money on reckless living. 
Um, did you hear what the brother said he did? He spent your money on prostitutes. That's what the brother says. And thirdly, he doesn't just have to work with pigs. He has to feed them. He is feeding the swine. Now, you, if you're a Jew and it's a conservative Jew, this is just, it's just the most repugnant thing possible. It's beyond embarrassing. It's humiliating. But when this kind of humiliation happens, it's more than the person who does it that suffers, isn't it? The family suffers this kind of humiliation. This is a familial humiliation. This is the whole family knows, oh, you're the parent of that boy. You're the brother of that boy. Oh, my, what must that be like? But what can you do? You know, you just have to suffer. Um, we could do perhaps what the, young, the older brother wanted to do, disown him. And we've heard this, right? We've heard parents who do this. Their kid is addicted to drugs or um, the, their kid is uh, working in a sex trade. Um, they come out as a homosexual. They, they cheer for the University of Michigan. I don't know. They do something terrible and they disown them. You're no longer my child. This is it. You're out of here. Um, and this is what the brother wants to do. This is what the brother has done. And you long for that day when they come crawling back. You long for that day when they come crawling back, begging for forgiveness and having spent everything. This young man comes to himself. How many of my father's hired hands have food to eat? He doesn't plan to go back as a son. He can't move back into his old room. That's not going to happen, right? He cannot take his place back in the family. But maybe, maybe dad will let me work with the sheep or pull weeds in the garden, or work in the shop. Maybe he'll make me like a hired hand. And he rose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His father saw him while he was still a long way off. Why? Because he was looking for him. Can you imagine the older brother day after day, the father standing out there looking for his son to come home, saying, oh, why are you looking for that kid? He's worthless. Let's, don't do that. Why are you doing that? And then scandal of all scandals. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him. One commentator writes this, the landowner in Jesus' parable does something landowners never do. He runs out to meet his wayward son the minute he spies him coming from afar. He doesn't send a servant. He doesn't wait for his son to come. He dashes down the road like no respectable landowner ever would, making a complete fool of himself. The father making a fool of himself. And he runs down and he grabs his son and he hugs him who smells like hogs. And he kisses him. And he says to his servants, bring your best robe, bring a ring, kill the calf, let's have a party. I think Jesus' audience who's sitting around hearing this story, I think they want to go, ooh, ooh, like find me a trash can, this is gross, who would do this? 
That's the accusation. Why does Jesus spend time with tax collectors and sinners? Remember the beginning of the passage? Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, This man receives sinners and he eats with them. How humiliating. How degrading. How disgusting. Why would you do that? Because God's love is not extinguished by our humiliation. Now, typically, I would say that the major takeaway from this passage is about um, forgiveness and restoration. Um, it's about, you know, can sinners return to God? And yes, of course they can. Jesus uh, eats with tax collectors and sinners, and people can be reconciled to God, and that's all true. And nine times out of ten, that's what you get from this sermon. You know why? Because we preachers love to preach about restoration and reconciliation and all this good stuff. Nothing like a good redemption story. But there's more to this story, isn't there? There's more to this story than just that. You see, Jesus seems to wrap up, and here's what I think we miss. Here's what, what 21st century Americans miss, because we're not first century Jews, is that he's tapped into Israel's story. This is an Exodus story coming out of, out of Egypt into the land that God had promised to Abraham. This is also a story of exile, of those who used to live in Jerusalem 600 years before Jesus' birth, who were uh, when the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem and destroyed the city and took them into exile. And 70 years later, they were allowed to return under Cyrus, the, the, the king of the Persians. And when they came back, the people from Jerusalem, who had been exiled and came back to the city, they found people living there, fellow countrymen, Samaritans, who didn't want them. And when they went up to the city to move back into their home, they had people throwing rocks at them and yelling at them and telling them to get away, jeering at them, you're not welcome here. And Jesus kind of taps into what the prophets had said. The reason that the people of Jerusalem were exiled, the reason the Babylonians had victory over them, is because they had it coming. They had committed two sins that God said would send punishment upon them. They had, they had uh, messed around with idolatry, had worshipped other gods, and they had oppressed the poor. And prophet after prophet, preacher after preacher said, if you do not turn around, you will be destroyed. They did not turn around, and they were destroyed. But in the mercy of God, they were allowed to return home. I want you to sort of juxtapose then in your mind these two stories. Exiles from Babylon who are returning home not welcomed. And then an older brother who says to his father, this son of yours has disgraced you. He shouldn't be welcome here. I know it's tough to get our minds around all that. Lots of history and lots of, uh, uh, of deep theological themes. The exile who returns home is he welcome? Because, see, here's another layer of embarrassment. It's the embarrassment the older brother should feel. Because he has a hardened heart and is not willing to, to accept his brother's forgiveness. And here's where it gets really close to home. Pull your feet back so I don't step on your toes on accident. We can become the older brother. You and I can become the older brother. We can be the one who is so sure of our own righteousness that we, um, we look down upon the one who's outside of the mercy of God or seemingly outside to us. And woe to us if we cringe at outsiders. Woe to us if we judge people because they're not wearing the right clothes or they don't come from the right zip code. 
Woe to us if we judge people because they don't, they don't execute the language the way they're supposed to. Woe to us if we, if we are um, judging people because their cultural appreciation isn't what it should be. Or if their lives are controlled by sin and we have no room for them in our lives. The church is not a club for well-groomed, well-dressed the, club, the church is a home for prodigals, a place where the Father's love is expressed and where people find a welcome and a respite. People who come looking for hope. And if we don't have room for that, that sort of person, then we should be embarrassed about ourselves. Because we all had moments of humiliation. And we all know what it feels like to be embarrassed. But we should learn a couple lessons, I think, from that embarrassment. The first is, it's not the last time. If, if you've been embarrassed or humiliated before, if you've done or said something really stupid and somebody saw it and you just got exposed, um, I'm sorry, but it's not the last time. It's going to happen again. I mean, likely. The second thing is that we should go easy on people who are embarrassed and humiliated that we should remember what it feels like to be tolerant of those. We should also remember how good forgiveness feels, that we have been forgiven, and so that somebody else might know how good it feels to be forgiven as well. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.